Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest songwriter, VJ, producer, performer, and so much more, Christopher Ward. We'll be talking about music, the business of music, the life of a multifaceted entertainer, and we'll get some other insights as well about recording albums and live shows and the songwriting process. So join us for a look inside the Canadian entertainment scene from someone who's been there for many decades. Christopher Ward was uh, known as a popular much music VJ and, and was then a major part of the Atlanta Miles hit album in 1989. He's basically done it all, touring, recording, producing, and much, much more, which we'll get into as we have our conversation. So thanks for joining me today, Christopher. How are you? Uh, it's my pleasure. Thank you, Dan. I've got, just gone from vintage to antique, though, over the course of this intro. <laughs> but thank you for the kind of words. Well, you know, we always say, if, if you don't like it, it's dated. If you like it, it's retro. So you're retro. <laughs> All right, I'm retro. I'm, I'm rolling with it now. <laughs> Me too. That's funny. So I, I read a bunch of your stuff. I've done a bunch of research. I'm going to ask you different kinds of questions. I hope you're okay with that. I'm not going to be the, the standard sort of question guy. And Just we'll talk about a bunch of different it. things. Yeah. So uh, you obviously you played guitar and, and piano when you were a kid, or you plunked around with with the music as a kid. Uh, which most of us did, and that turned into something for you. But then I read here that you your first sort of foray into the biz was college radio. Yeah, I was going to Trent University, and my friend Stephen Stone and I, along with um, a guy named Peter Northrop at Trent, started the campus radio station, and that was so much fun. Cool. Yeah. From that, I got hired to be the all-night DJ at uh, CKBT in Peterborough, Ontario, and uh, I went to school during the day, so you can imagine which of those two things suffered the most. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, no, that's cool because it's an exciting time. I know when I was at SFU, we had, we did a radio show. We did a morning show. We had to be there at six in the morning. So that was brutal too, but we did the, the opposite. But it was a fun time. There's a real buzz around college campuses, right? And university campuses and the radio station. So. Oh, and I mean, we, you know, working with something that didn't exist before, that was fantastic, yes. you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Inventing anything is the best. Yeah. Cool. And, and of course you're young and there's a real buzz going on, but what struck me then is how did you jump from that to recording? You obviously started recording music and then you had your album, like the spark of desire and you got a Warner brothers deal and, and that didn't just fall out of the sky. How did, how did you make that transition? Well, I don't even know that it was a transition. I mean, I was, you know, playing the guitar from, you know, later on in high school into my days at Trent. And um, I, I was always fascinated with songwriting. I was writing poetry and doing those kind of things that you do when, you, when you're getting started. Um, and radio was just yeah. something that I fell into because, you know, if you want to hear pop tunes, you listen to the radio. And, you you know, the, I remember the radio guys when I was a kid growing up in Toronto, I mean, on Chum AM, they were like the purveyors of this stuff that I was craving. It was like teenage heroin, you know? To getting to hear yeah. about the latest happening from the Beatles or Bob Dylan or the Rolling Stones or the Kinks, you know. And so radio was important. And so when I had a chance to, to work in radio while I was going to college, that just seemed like a perfect uh, combination. But all along, really, Dan, I was a songwriter and an artist. Yeah, no, that's a good point because the radio back then, for the young people that don't know nowadays, was the conduit for getting new stuff, exciting stuff. I mean, you listen to the radio, writing down lyrics, right? Trying to trying to get the lyrics to the song when it gets played every however long the rotation was, right? Well, my father used to have this old um, Bell and Howell reel-to-reel uh, tape recorder. 
Oh, cool. And it it had a microphone attached to it that looked like one of those sort of call mics you'd use in a in, a, in an old uh, police car. Yeah, <laughs> so, I'm familiar um, with it. it. And he he used it for business presentations, I think. But he used to bring it home on the weekends, and that meant it was mine. And so, you know, I started messing around and playing guitar and like recording songs off the radio and then singing along with them on the other track it was, you know, was the most primitive stuff. But um, yeah, that was, that was magic time. <laughs> oh, that's cool. And, and so once in a long time, maybe your heart will, I mean, those are great AM songs. I love those songs that I, I listened to them because I listened you. to AM radio in the seventies. And so was that a studio creation? You didn't have an actual band, right? You just went in the studio and got some guys and recorded. No, I did have a band. Um, okay. I played, you know, we, we played, I mean, it started out, you know, I had a guitar player and then we added a bass player and then we added a drummer and, you know, all the usual sort of growth spurts yeah. you take as a performer. Um, but yeah, I mean, those those records though were made with studio musicians specifically, um, yeah. and that was because I got signed to Warner Brother and Warner Brothers, and they, then there was that opportunity to do that. But the players that they had, I mean, Once in a Long Time was the first of those, and they had people like Steve mm-hmm. Ferroni, the drummer from the Average White Band, who went on to play with Duran Duran and Elton John and uh, yeah. Eric Clapton, and he was in Petty's band for the last like 25, 30 years of that band. Hmm. I mean, this guy, cool. you know, and these that's what session musicians were. It wasn't this, these sort of sleepy-eyed guys who just, you know, like they were playing jingles, kind of, you know, walked through what they were doing. Yeah, It was the best musicians on, on the planet all in one room at one time, Mo Kaufman and Guido Basso, yeah. for, you know, the great Canadian artists. I mean, it was, it was amazing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, and so I was curious, why didn't you continue down that road? I mean, you were you had the modicum of success, right? I mean, you had some play. I don't know how big it was in the states, but those I heard those songs lots of times. And so, why didn't you continue down that road? Well, I think you know, I did what <clears throat> countless artists before me have done. They they changed their mind about what they wanted to do creatively. Okay, and I wanted to. I mean, I grew up playing rock and roll and sort of folk rock, I suppose, would be the marriage of stuff that I did. And um, I moved it in that direction, and that wasn't how they saw me. They saw me as like a, hmm. oh, I don't know, like a Sean Cassidy or something, you know, like a teen star. And, and well, I, I didn't yeah. want that. Okay, well, I mean, that, that's the AM Gold thing, right? I mean, that's that. If but chasing that is is a bit of a tough road, right? I mean, you'd have to tour all the time. You'd have to be the the pretty boy touring guy, right? You know, I I mean, it's easy to go back and make some kind of sense out of what I did and the choices that I made. But honestly, Dan, in the moment, you just do what you think is right and what you, you know, artistically are driven to do. Um, There's not a lot of planning that goes on. I, I, I can't say that there was a roadmap for my career that led me from A to B to C. I can draw those lines now, but they're artificial. I mean, I did what I did because it felt right and for really no other good reason. Well, it's a good point because I often say to people, well, you know, if you want to be happy, you got to feed your soul and you you can feed your soul quite easily by doing things that you're drawn to and that you like. And that's at the expense of other things, right? A hundred percent right. Yeah. And then, uh, so you're so multifaceted. It's, it's great to to read some of the stuff that you did, but you did, you got into TV, right? You were doing TV appearances and and the City Limits show, I guess the, the DJ thing, you sort of combined everything as a musician and an entertainer and a, and a obviously a, a program uh, host and you did city limits and that turned into much music. 
Yeah, that you're right. It was a, it was really a confluence of different experiences. I mean, right before City Limits came along, I had been in the Second City touring company, um, doing you know improvisational comedy, not well, but I did it. Um, and <laughs> you know, I mean, I'd, I'd hosted a kids show on CBC uh, back in the late '70s, right around the time that those records came out, like Maybe Your Heart, Once in a Long Time, and. So I'd done some yeah. TV work and, you know, it was a kid's show. So there were interviews, but they were with children. <laughs> but, you know, it was a lot of fun and great experience. Um, so then, you know, combining all of that, plus just an overall love of music and the opportunity to do City Limits was pretty amazing. It was like, you know, John Martin, the, the boss there said, well, first of all, because I wasn't going to do it. I didn't want to do it. I was focused on my music. And he said, well, you need the money, don't you? I went, well, yeah. <laughs> now that you mention it <laughs> he said okay yeah <laughs> and you can do anything you want it's like oh creative freedom oh, hmm, that's very go. appealing yeah. so that was the magic combination by which he tricked me into becoming the first vj i mean actually in terms of much the first vjs were myself and uh jd roberts who's now john roberts yeah. on fox news well, that's right. I was going to ask you about that because he he's he's on Fox. He's been interviewing President of the United States. I mean, he went yeah. totally straight, right, and went down there. Do you still have a total shift for him? Do you stay in touch with him? Have you talked to him over the years? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, we we did not very often, but the, the last time that I had a communication with him, I was writing a book about the history of much music called "Is This Live?" And um, yeah, yeah, he was the first person I called, and he oh, was good. just he, yeah. I, I messaged him, and he got back like 10 minutes. And so we just had a great, you know, back oh, nice. about the, uh, the good old days. And, um, yeah, you know, he, he, he is perceived as being sort of straight lace and he was that even during the much days, if you look back at the stuff that he did, yeah. but he is, hmm. uh, an incredibly talented broadcaster. I mean, this guy, he runs circles around most people. And I remember the first time it occurred to me, sorry, this is a tangent, but maybe that's what the show's for. Oh, <laughs> <It's tangents. laughs> um, he was, he had moved over from doing music on much to being uh, a newscaster and there was an election. And those are typically pretty hairy things to cover because there's constant flows of information coming from all different sources so he's there and he's on air and there's a floor director who's holding up things for him to do and things for him to throw to. And he's got an earpiece in and he's reading copy. And I just watched him with all these balls in the air and he made it look effortless. And he had just started in it. Um, whereas people who are like way more experienced broadcasters, you could sort of see them stumbling or not stumbling, but definitely trying to find their way through all of this this information overload. And um, he's a skilled guy to say the least. Yeah, I know it's a good point because when you got the earpiece in, you have to kind of listen to it, but ignore it at the same time and not lose your train of thought on yeah. what you're actually talking about and then thinking about the exactly. next thing you're going to talk about. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's like if you and I were sitting here, we had somebody else in our ears going, yeah. hey, what are you doing? Get out of here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ask him this, ask him that. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. That's too funny. Well, I was going to say, just going back to the second city thing. I mean, that you said you, you didn't do that very well. I mean, there's some guys like the Colin Mockeries of the world who are just gems, right? I mean, they're just, that's their whole element, but you must've learned a lot doing the sketch comedy and music. And that would be a whole grab bag of things that you would have done on that. Right. No holds barred. Well, I, I, I know Colin is actually a good friend. He and his wife, Deborah okay. Rather, really old, nice. dear friends of mine. 
And Deborah was in the company uh, when I joined, but so was Bruce Peary, who's a fantastically talented director and writer and actor, but I don't think he's acted much recently. Um, Ron James, yeah. who you probably know. Um, and of course, yeah. Mike Meyer. I mean, they were all in the same company with me. So, I mean, there was no shortage of talent. <laughs> you're and looking when at, I, when I, when you're I looking at own going, um, abilities up next to theirs. Mm, it pales. Let me be honest with you, Dan. <laughs> I don't mind saying it. Uh, but it was it was just a great experience, like learning how to think on your feet. Because I'm I'm kind of a planner, you know. I, I I like things to be laid out and kind of know where I'm going. Um, and I had to get over that. Yeah. And it was a very very uh, useful tool when yeah. it came to doing live television, as you can imagine. Yes, yeah, very much so. Yeah, it's funny when you get around guys that are uber talented like that, and, and you know the old the old saying that you never never compare your weaknesses against someone else's strengths, or you'll constantly feel like a failure. <laughs> so you just have to find your place where you where you are comfortable, right? And so, but I, I think yeah. stuff like that is good training ground. And I've I've been you know I took acting one time, and it just wasn't my thing. You know, I mean, I didn't feel like a failure at it. I just it just wasn't my thing. I just didn't feel comfortable. But you probably learned something, right? I, I did. Absolutely. I took a stand-up comedy course twice. And again, it yeah. wasn't my thing, but I learned a lot. You know, it was, it was a good experience. Ooh, twice. You know, just a bear for punishment. Right? <laughs> That's a tough gig, man. I mean, I, I okay. I've never done stand-up, nor would I ever care to. That That just seems so raw, you know? Yeah, they went through the process and and explained it all and everything. But some guys have a natural affinity for it, and they're just funny anyways. I mean, that's why Howie Mandel and guys like that. He 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 was just a party guy that would make everybody laugh, right? Yes, exactly. He went into I think he entered a contest or something, and everyone was just laughing. So, have you ever seen uh, Ron James solo shows? Yeah, what was it? What was it called? I mean, he had the TV, he had um, TV show. Bizarre, wasn't it? Um, I'm. Well, I don't mean the TV show that he did on an ongoing basis, but I mean he had a uh, he has these live shows that he does, and he just gets up for two hours and talks. Yeah, it's it's him, a microphone, and a glass of water. Yeah, and it's staggering. I mean, he has them in the palm of his hand. It's just such yeah. a gift. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing, and that's again somebody like that. Just they're in their element, right? So, yeah, exactly. You know. So I just want to switch gears a little bit and ask you about the video stuff. You know, like I've been an entertainer my whole life, uh, well, since the mid seventies. And, you know, when the video craze hit, you know, I, I thought that was super cool, right? MTV, much music and stuff. And, and we all thought it would be permanent, like that, that was going to be the new way that, that videos <laughs> were going to be in, in, in any serious single that came out and stuff, you had to have a video, right? I mean, you just couldn't promote a song on a major scale without a video, but that it waned. And I always wondered why. And I just wanted to get your take on that. Well, um, everything wanes, is what I would say as a generalization. Yeah. Um, you know, nothing really lasts forever. Um, but I think people still do make music videos, and for good reasons. Um, I mean, there are the bigger artists, like somebody like Beyonce is going to make a music video, and it's probably going to be spectacular because there's so much that goes into it not only the musical content, but the visual content and the themes that she's working. So I think music video still has a place sort of in people's, you know, on the, the, the entertainment menu, shall we say, but how you yeah. get those music videos, that's different. There really is no mm -hmm. longer a much music or an MTV that are these sort of exclusive purveyors of this, you know, video stuff yeah. that we all love. Um, 
I mean, it's YouTube, right? I mean, you know, if, if, if video killed the radio star, then the internet killed the video star, I think is what happened. Yeah. That's, um, that's probably a good point. Yeah. It, I think nowadays it is. And then of course people can shoot stuff. I mean, about probably about 15 years ago, we had a guy come and see our band and he said, you guys have a video. And, and we said, well, no, we don't. And then they, he said, well, how much does it cost to make one? And we, I don't know, we were thinking, I don't know. I, I think our singer said 20,000. Well, he gave us a, a check for 50,000 and said, we'll make a video. And we, wow. we crunched the numbers and it was like, well, there's just no way that you're ever going to get your money back from this. I mean, that's going to be money. We're going to spend 50 grand and it's going to be gone. Yep. We'll have a nice video that a handful of people will see. There's no monetary value in it. There's no money stream that's going to come back from that. And we just ended up, we spent 10 on the video and we called in some favors and we took 10 each because <laughs> we figured we'd be further ahead. And how did your investor feel about the outcome of that? Well, he, he didn't care. I mean, he ne- he didn't follow up. He didn't ask. He wasn't there. It wasn't an investment because he realized, you know, being a money guy, that there was no money stream there. That that was the whole rub of it, right? Like the bands were spending six figures on videos with no real way. Yeah, sure, you get a bunch of plays on much music. You get some MTV plays. You get a bit of money back, but I think most of them would have lost. I mean, when you did the the Atlanta Miles album, I think there was what four videos from that. Yes. You know, what would the budget have been for that? And how would you have got that back? Through record sales. Yeah, exactly. But not directly through the video. And if those videos are seen to promote record sales, um, then there is a way to monetize them. I mean, the other way to look at it, like something that's more analogous to what you were telling me about your, the person that spent 50 grand on you, is when I was working with Alana, we decided to make a video to try to help get her a record deal. Cause I'd been shopping her for, I don't know, five or six years and okay. we just gotten like no reaction. And I really believed in her mm-hmm. and she believed in me. And, um, so we, we did the thing. We called in all these favors. Like I me, mean, for example, there was, um, a guy that I used to work for actually at CKBT talk about old connections. Um, he was my boss there when I was doing the all night show in Peterborough and he had been teaching at Centennial college in Toronto, he taught the uh, audiovisual course, a radio TV course there. And um, so we needed a crowd for our video. And I just said, would you bring your students? He's like, yeah, sure. We'll make it an educational experience. So that came in. And then I called in all the guys much on camera that I'd worked with. And then we went to a club where people I knew had performed and we got, you know, a cut rate deal for a day at the club. And, you know, we, we did it for under five grand. Oh, wow. That video. That video got her a record deal with Atlantic Records. And without that video, none of it would have happened. That's nice to hear, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that may be the exception to the rule, I, I grant you. But I guess I'm saying that, you know, if you're, if you're looking at the overview, there, there are ways creatively to make something like that work for you. And, and I think it's still the case. Because it's really hard for a band to get seen when they're really young, you know, to get the people that matter out to see them. And you do need the visual. I mean, people use you know, their own uh, resources to create, you know, fantastic web pages and, and, well, now, of course, pseudo live experiences and things. So whatever works, yeah. right? Yeah, good point. I just, some of the industry guys that I talked to would complain about it because they said, you have to up the ante. Like I can't spend six, six figures on a video that I'm not going to get my money back from. And the amount of album sales and the recoupable money is all has to be paid back anyways. And you just pile it on top of, so we have to sell a half a million albums to, to break even yeah. before we even make any money. 
And it's like yeah, there was a, there was a lot of excess to be sure. Yeah, yeah. So uh, okay, well, cool. I just wanted to ask you about that because I do remember like when Atlanta Miles hit, it was the videos. I mean, I heard the songs and it was all great and everything, but I do remember the videos because she had a presence and the videos were cool and there was a few of yeah. them. Yeah. So well, hopefully, hopefully you got both. It's like Michael Jackson made extraordinary videos, but the music backed it up, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then uh, that was the same year that uh, Up to Here came out. That was the same year that uh, Tragic Hip broke, just later that year, I guess. Hmm. And you were gone from much music by then, though, right? I left uh, at the end of 89. Okay, so right when it hit then. Yeah, I don't know what the release date of Up to Here was, but I remember we played... It was later, early. September. <clears throat> oh, okay, because we played the very earliest hip videos. I remember when I was still there, so... Yeah. Yeah. So they hit, I think, uh, up to here was released in, in, well, cause it was a big deal, right? Like when Atlanta hit, it was a big deal. And, and then tragically yeah. hip came out right after. And that was, you know, I was in, I was going to the SFU, I think at the time too. And it was a big deal cause they were a big deal on college campuses and stuff too. The tragically hip had, had a real circuit, I think going with that stuff. Right. And, well, interestingly, they, I remember when I interviewed them for the book, they said that the video made all the difference in the world to their audiences. Cool. Well, there you go. So, and you wouldn't have necessarily thought that those those early hip videos were, I guess, I'm trying to remember now, yeah. sort of performance videos, right? Yeah. Mostly. Yeah, I think so. Most most of bands on stage. Yeah. I th I think some people got sort of tired of those sort of traditional videos, and especially the hair bands and stuff, because they all looked very similar. <laughs> you think? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure, as you know. <laughs> So well, that's cool. And then, so I wanted to ask you about the professional songwriting. So you okay? I just want to take a quick uh, station break here and then we'll be right yeah, back yeah. and I'll ask you about some songwriting. Okay. Sure enough. We're talking to Christopher Ward. We'll be right back. You can hear music from today's guests and other Canadian musicians from the sixties to eighties, every Tuesday and Thursday on dusty discs radio, including one hit wonders, regional favorites, songs from the top and bottom of the charts, TV show theme songs, commercials, and a news clip or two from back in the day. Listen online at DustyDiscsRadio.com or download the TuneIn Radio app to your tablet or smartphone. Search Dusty Discs Radio and mark it a favorite. Now let's get back to our special guest. All right, we're back on Liner Notes, talking to Christopher Ward about, oh, we talked about Atlanta Miles, we talked about much music, and we're going to talk about professional songwriting now, and, and writing hit songs is, is everyone's goal that's a professional songwriter, and and things like specific tunes for specific artists and, and whatnot. So I was going to ask you about that. You know, you've, you've done some of that. Uh, do you just write songs and kind of put them out there, or do you write for specific people, or maybe a combination? It's the combination plate on that for sure. Um, yeah. It depends what your access is. If you're working with the artist, that's always the best situation because you get to spend time with them and get a better sense of what their identity is as an artist and what they're capable of singing, what would be believable coming out of their mouths. And you get a much yeah. better chance of getting your song on the record if you do that. Now, I've also written songs sometimes for an artist and they've ended up in somebody else's hands because the original artist didn't want it and it's done well. I mean, it's like, yeah. there's no real exact formula for, um, you know, for how you, how you go about it. Um, but you know, you just seek out what opportunities you can and try to write the best song you can. 
Yeah, I watched your whole um, songwriting seminar on Long McQuaid there. It was about two hours long, but really content rich. I really enjoyed it. I watched the whole thing. And, Thank you. Uh, it was long, wasn't it? Yeah, it was long, but you know, it was good. And and uh, that was like my stand-up routine, Dan. That was, <laughs> that's the closest I'm ever going to get. A couple funny <laughs> moments in there. It was good. Yeah. So, but I, the reason I thought of that was because you know I was talking to Mark Jordan about rhythm of my heart, right? And, and that song had kicked around for about ten years. He said he wrote that song, and it was on the shelf yeah. of a publisher's for ten years. And then we were talking about. Yeah writing a hit song and he made a really good point about you know it's 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 a bit it's not quite right to say i wrote a hit song quote unquote because it has to be produced and presented and promoted and by the right artist in the right way yeah and then it then it gets embraced you know because there's lots of potential hit songs out there that will never be hit songs even though they, they could you, be you know that's a very astute and very insightful thing no surprise mark being the brilliant man that he is um yeah but i mean when i think about black velvet it's like it's not a prototypical hit song. I mean, the stuff that was out and happening in those days was, you know, like Huey Lewis and the News and, you know, yeah. Bon Jovi and that kind of stuff. And, um, I mean, Atlanta, like, it was a blues song. It didn't really fit in with, with anything that was on the radio. Um, yeah. But we had, you know, a good record company and some people at the label that really believed in her. She had a good manager in the U.S. in Danny Goldberg. And... Um, yeah. She looked like a million bucks when she hit the stage and she had a great band. It's like you just need everything to fit together magically. It's really a miracle that there's ever such a thing as a hit song. People always go, <laughs> oh, so after you got a hit song, you know, why didn't you follow it up with another one? It's like, well, God, I don't know. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Try it sometime. It's not that easy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it's funny because years ago I wrote a song called Looking for the Magic and that's what it was about. It was like there's, there's no – there's this – when you find it, you know what it is, but there's no sort of formulaic way of getting to it. You just have to kind of poke around. Um, some guys talk about channeling or or just going into the musical universe and pulling out stuff that, that sounds right, but you're looking for that magical combination and, and there's no formula for that or else we would all just do the formula and it would be fine. Yeah. Well, the channeling thing is an interesting word to use because um, I think I think I mentioned that in the Long and McQuaid seminar is that a lot of writers that I would talk to, they would say, well, I don't really know where these ideas come from. I'm just kind of glad that they do. Yeah. And I just want to be receptive, kind of be in the moment, in the mode when, when it happens so that um, you know I'm aware. It's because it's about recognizing a good idea as well. Yeah. You know, I think like a lot I think every songwriter, if you put in your time, you know, at the keyboard or on your guitar or on your computer, whatever, whatever you do as your creative process, I think eventually good ideas will come to you, yeah. but you have to be in the right sort of receptive frame of mind and you have to recognize a good one when it comes along and go, ah, now yeah. that I can work with. Yeah. I don't necessarily recognize it. So what I do is I write, especially lyric stuff, obviously, um, just kind of um, without any discipline or editing, I just let it flow. I just start writing, you know, stream of consciousness style and pour the words out on the page until they stop coming out of the end of the pen. Yeah. And then I put it away yeah. because what will happen? And I know it every time it happens the same. I'll go back, I'll pull the piece of paper, I will look at it and I'll go, who wrote this? Yeah. <laughs> it literally doesn't even look like something that, that 
I would think of. And it's, but that's great yeah. because it's that strangeness about it that kind of inspires you to go and make it into something else. And I'll go back and pick maybe just, you know, two or three, four phrases from that, you know, full long page or two of stuff and use those as the foundation for a song. Yeah, good point. And and I think it doesn't need to be something spooky when you use the word channeling from the spirit realm, but it can be sort of in Freudian terms, maybe the id. You know, you've got all this subconscious and you've got a lot of stuff bubbling up there and then you try to lasso a mm-hmm. few ideas and pull them out. And we, I took a writing course one time and they would make us do that. You just have to sit and write for 10 minutes. Doesn't matter. Don't think about it. Just let your brain go. And some of it was gibberish, obviously, but some of it had some kernels in there. That would be, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's what you're So then I wanted to ask you about like staff writers and stuff, you know, like some, some of these people have like songwriting factories almost now where you got writing teams in several rooms and you got a star that goes from room to room. What do you got? What do you got? You know, and that some of it's really trite and same lines over and they sing the same line over and over again. And it's almost like a songwriting factory, cut it, wrap it, freeze it. Let's get it out to the pablum out to the people. And what's your thoughts on that? Well, I'm not as uh, cynical about it as you are, <laughs> I have to say. Um, I mean, to me, it's very much analogous to the way that songs were written back in the 60s at the Brill Building and at the Hit Factory in, in Motown in Detroit, um, where you had established songwriting teams working in usually pretty small rooms. Yeah. And they... I mean, Motown, they would have a, a nine o'clock Monday morning meeting and all the writing teams would show up and it'd be like, okay, so this week we've got this brand new band called the Supremes, yeah. three girls and they need something and blah, blah, blah. And then we also need something for Marvin Gaye and we also need something for the Temptations. I mean, they would go down and they would all go, oh, okay, okay, okay. And then everybody would go off and, and write their songs and then pitch them to the artists and to Barry Gordy, who was the boss. And it was the same... Um, Nick, now, for example, there's this kind of writing camp phenomenon, which sounds like that's what you were referring to, where mm-hmm. writers are brought in. And I've done a couple of them. I, you know, honestly, I didn't really like them because, you know, as you pointed out, they can be a bit of a factory. Um, like, for example, when they had the uh, Canadian Idol uh, show on every year, they would convene a group of 30 or 40 writers again in all these tiny little rooms for an entire week and everybody would feverishly go about writing what to me was the same song yeah. because you'd get a mandate at the beginning of the week from either from the idle winner or from the A&R people like, well, they kind of want it to be Coldplay, but a little bit harder and a little bit, you know, yeah. and you know, you'd get, okay. And everybody go, yeah, okay, we're going to try, try to do that. Um, but you know, if you just go, Oh, what the heck, I can't do that. And besides there's, 39 other people who are doing it. Why don't we just write something that we like and it's different. And then if it works, it works. And if not, we'll take it elsewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that, I guess that's what I'm getting at in, in the idea that songwriting is supposed to be a piece of your heart, right? Like the, the old saying, you know, the people, they want you, they want a part of you and your song is a reflection of you. Like, like I, I read Wordsworth years ago was talking about poetry saying it's the spontaneous overflow of powerful emotions and then later on, he talks about uh, the transference of that emotion, right? And I thought, well, that's what songwriting is. That's what I do when I write songs. Well, in an ideal world, yes. But there still, I think, is a place for, um, I don't know, I'm going to call it writing to order 
you know, what Mozart yeah. did. <laughs> you know? Well, you can't, yeah. You know, there's expectations. Uh, or even to work within parameters. It's like the poems that are written for presidential inaugurations. I mean, those those have to be, yeah. you know, confined thematically to some extent. That doesn't make them any weaker creatively. Like, I always found it really useful when I had a set of parameters. Um, mm-hmm. I wrote some songs um, with Diana Ross, and I remember, like, I would sit down with her and it would just be like, okay, what do you want to do? And she'd say, well, I've got it in my head that I really want to do this, and it, I want to do a song that is inspirational, that I can sing and does the following. And then she'd maybe give me some examples and so on. And I'd go, okay, okay. And then I would go away and write something. And if it wasn't exactly right, she'd ask me to change it or she would go, great. And she recorded, a like, we did five songs and she recorded a couple of them. And that's a pretty good percentage. Um, but yeah. Without those yeah. parameters, I would have been just writing into the wind, you know. So it was really useful yeah. to have. Yeah, no, that's that's a good point. And, and uh, it's funny because I've listen to a lot of songwriters and the processes that they use. And and so, for example, Gordon Lightfoot's one of my favorite, like for singing guitar player, singer, songwriter, he's my guy, right? Oh, I just love him. And he, he would lock himself away, right? He'd just lock himself yeah. away for days and then emerge with this stuff that was just so good, like just so good. But that doesn't mean, you know, it, A, that you have to do it that way or B, that that will work yeah, for fair. you. It may be that something, yeah, yeah. It, it may be that, um, you know, walking through city streets uh, with your notebook in your hand and maybe a little portable tape recorder or using your phone, whatever works, um, is going to give you more inspiration because there's all this input just, you know, zapping you from, from all the situations you're walking past. I mean, like I, I love songs that have a story behind them where there's, you, you don't have to know all the details. It doesn't even have to be true. But I like it when there's a narrative. And I sat down with a woman named Meredith Brooks. She had a big hit. uh, I guess it was in, well, trying to think, early 2000s called Bitch. Do you remember that song? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Great singer. Um, Yeah. And um, she was writing songs for the album that had that song on it. And she told me this story. We were just sitting in the studio having a cup of coffee before the session. And she said, you know, I, I had this story that I would love to try to work into a song. I went, great. She said, yeah, my f- I had a group of friends that used to hang out. And, um, you know, we partied a lot. I'm going, okay. She said, but gradually, one by one, we all either got married or somebody would have a kid or somebody's opportunities would come in their career or they just would become – you know, that time passes by and you become more serious about things. It's an inevitable sort of growth stage. She said, but there's one friend who just never got the memo, who's continued to party hardy all, all into her 30s. And um, she said, I always wondered, you know, I worried that I was going to get that call one day, you know, that she'd overdosed or something. And then I, you know, because I knew she was living on the edge. She said, and I always wondered, was I partially responsible for that behavior? Did I encourage it? Did I make it possible? Mm. You know, was our Mm. friendship kind of, you know, an enabling factor? And I just, I thought, wow. I mean, first of all, there's a great story right in the beginning of it, but also the very fact that she's willing to take responsibility for something that might have happened to her friend or might yet happen. 
that's where the emotional punch came for, from. So we wrote yeah. this song called I Watched You Fall, you know, and I think the lyric in the chorus was, um, was I blind to you? Was I lying to you like everybody else who watched you fall? They say, yeah. uh, they say they love you, but they're laughing when you crawl. And, mm. you know, there's always the buffoon in the, the one, the, the one drunk who goes just too far and ends up crawling around their hand yeah. on the, hands and knees on the, at the party. And it was just, um, it was so poignant. And um, it was just one of my favorite songs that I've written with somebody. I know this is a long story, but it, it's how, how a great narrative can, can fuel a song, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's right. The high school buddy got a little too high, right, from Sour Sweet. I always remembered that line. And Oh, the guess who? Companies, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that was, uh, it's funny how certain lines can jump out at you and then totally. don't be that guy, you know? So, but it's funny too, with the process, you know, you listen to like, like Don Felder, when he wrote the chords for Hotel California, he said the skies just kind of opened up and this, this chord pattern came to me and I took it to the guys and they thought it was great. And then you got Hotel California, one of the biggest songs in the history of music or Clapton, when he wrote Layla, he said he, that day, he remembers that day. He just wanted to have that day again. And he couldn't have that day again. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to have that day again. Do you know who James McMurtry is? No, I, the name sounds familiar. His father, uh, who just died, was Larry McMurtry, the novelist, who wrote Lonesome okay. Dove and a number of other sort of Western-themed novels, <clears throat> wonderful American writer. James McMurtry, his son, is a killer songwriter. But he, he, what you said reminded me that he has a line in, in a song called Hurricane Party. He goes, I don't need another drink. I just need that last one again. You know, it's just like, yeah, oh, there you go. Oh, I want to write that line, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I, well, and then the funny thing is I watched a, a video one time. I don't know if, how well known it is, but it was Elton John was doing a songwriting seminar at a college. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but he, he said, oh, it's easy. You know, and he said, does somebody have a textbook here? And then somebody brought a textbook up and he just whipped it open and started playing. He was playing, <laughs> I don't know what, two, five, an arpeggiated two, five or something. He started singing the textbook. And it actually wasn't bad, you know. I mean, it was. And he goes, "Ah, it's easy. You just just do this." <laughs> like, well, that's yeah, pretty easy funny. for you. I, I have never seen that. I got I got to go looking for that. But that's funny. But yeah, I mean, he's acting like it's the easiest thing in the world, and and so I sort of thought the process for him. Bernie Toppin comes up with these, you know, poems or whatever they are. Elton just sits down and starts tinkling. You know, you know, he knows the diatonic chords, and he starts arpeggiating a couple things. I don't know what he did, but he, he just made it look easy. Yeah. You know, so that, that was a process for him. And I think, you know, looking at that, I think that a lot of his songs probably emerged that way. I have a couple of people that I work with who are like that for, they, they don't want me to write melodies just because they don't need me basically to do so. So I will give yeah. them a completed lyric. I'm thinking of one guy in yeah. particular, a guy named Rob Wells. And, um, he just, he's like, would you uh, go, go get us a coffee? <laughs> I know, I know what he's doing. He's telling me to get lost yeah. in like 15 minutes yeah. and that's all he needs. And I come yeah, back and he'll go, well, I, what do you think? I sort of got this thing. I'll be like, oh my God, that's gorgeous. You know, and we'll be off. Yeah. And then, the, you know, the rest of the song will be written. But, um, I mean, I, I have to labor a little more over my lyrics. I mean, sure. I'll get little bursts of stuff that come quickly, but I, I, I mean, I, I think it's usually the melody writers are the guys that come up with stuff really fast. Yeah. I mean, that's a generalization, but often. Yeah, no, I, I great, think that's great right. Great lyricists, I mean, take their time. It's like Bob Dylan, yeah, yeah, sure, he's done some stream of consciousness writing, you know, back in the early days. But you listen to the songs on, uh, you know, Blood on the Tracks or, or you listen to Joni Mitchell's, um, you know, uh, 
Help Me album. It's like you know, Court and Spark. She did not throw those lyrics down on the page in a little no, that's peak. Sick. You know, she yeah. she worked through that stuff, and that's why it sounds like such genius because it is. You know. Yeah. And it, and it's hard. I mean, it's, it's writing. Uh, I took a poetry class one time years ago now, probably 25 years ago, but the, the teacher was an, he was a poet and he just hated anything trite or anything cliche. He didn't want anything to do with that. You, you weren't allowed to use the word love. So we would analyze poems and we'd write poems. You weren't allowed to use the word love in a poem. And I, th- I was thinking, cause I thought it would help songwriting lyrics. But the one point that he did make was that every word should count. Like in poetry, it's, it's economy, right? So every word needs to count. And he was really particular about that. And he wanted short, small poems that were jam-packed with meaning. Well, and it was really hard to do. I mean, that's a good discipline. And I think it's a useful um, practice uh, for a songwriter to do that. But I think there is a distinction to be made between poetry and lyric writing. Yes, I would agree with that. Absolutely. I mean, lyrics are meant to be heard. Yeah. They're meant to be sung. They're not meant to be... Uh, recited and it makes a difference and sometimes lyrics that on the page look a little funky or just a little trite or whatever if they're presented the right way vocally with the right melody they can take on great power um and i'm not as afraid of cliche as i used to be and i had a wonderful interview with neil young and i was asking him about the song uh, rocking in the free world and he, he, you know, he answered as many people do. I don't know where it came from. I was on my bus touring, and I had this idea. And he said, "Yeah, I just kept coming back to it. Keep on rocking in the free world. Keep on rocking." And he said, "But I just went, oh man, that's such a cliche." He said, "But then I knew I had to use it. You know, yeah, there you go. No, and that's and a good just, point. I loved his sort of you know little turn at the end of the sentence. Well, then I had to use it because it was a cliche." Um, and he was right, right? Because what he did is he wrote this really detailed story in the, that plays out in the verses and then yeah. hits the chorus hard. Keep on rocking the free world over and over again, like four yeah. times in a row, whatever it is. And yeah, uh, I've sung it many times that we did. Yeah, so there you go. Years, so. Like, yeah. I mean, your poetry teacher wouldn't be happy with that chorus. He'd probably tell him you know, not to use it. But without it, we wouldn't have much of a song. Well, fair enough. And and I was there to try to help my, my lyrics writing. And then I realized, yeah, people aren't analyzing the lyrics like you would deconstruct a poem. They weren't chewing on, you know, the poems, you got to chew on it a bit, think about it and stuff. They want this sort of instant response. Hey, yeah, keep on rocking in the free world. I mean, that that's an instant sort of reception that you get to that. They're not analyzing it. It just means something to them in the moment. So I, I did get that distinction and I think it's a good one. I feel like I've, I've diverted from our path here today. By oh, it's all good. Once, once you get me talking about songwriting, it's all over, I'm afraid, Dan. <laughs> you know what? I, I like to ask different kinds of questions, too, So, because I, I know you've probably had hundreds of interviews and you get asked similar things. And I like to kind of dig a little deeper from a musician's perspective, too, someone who's been a career entertainer and written lots of songs and not, of course, to your level, but uh, certainly done, you know, made my dent anyway. And I wanted to ask you about Amanda Marshall's Beautiful Goodbye. I always said a great song, but uh, I always, I'm always dumbfounded about Amanda Marshall. Like, she's so good. I mean, she why isn't she a superstar? Like, um, well, her first, record, her first record did very, very well. Yes. Uh, it sold a couple million units around the world, and that, you know, could have launched her career very easily. Um, but the second album you know, was a little 
you know, down from that sales wise and the next one down from that. And, um, I don't, I don't really know her process cause I didn't, I only worked with her on the first album. Okay. She came down to LA to work with Dave Tyson, who was, um, her producer who produced Alana's records. And, um, she was a delight to work with and just an enormous talent. Well, she's great. But I, like, like but shockingly I just don't, good. I don't, I mean, she was great on stage. I don't really know, uh, what okay. happened. And not the first to ask that question. I, if I had an insight, I would tell you, but I don't, but I like anyone, like most of us, I would really welcome her back. Should she choose to do so? Well, yeah, because even that song, I Believe in You, I mean, that's fantastic. And and she was on Ellen one time and, and Elton John had bought one of her albums and said that he really liked Amanda Marshall's yeah. song, you know? And so that yeah. was, I mean, come on, you're there. But at that point, you're there. So you just got to stay there, I guess. <laughs> Easier said than done, right? <laughs> yes, I guess. Uh, well, that's that leads into my next question. I was going to ask you about Black Velvet and, you know, you set up the scene and you capture the feel. And I, and I saw your interview where you're talking about how you did that. And it reminded me of John Fogarty because I do a Fogarty show. So I read his book, Fortunate Son, and he'd never been, he wrote all this swamp rock, but he'd never been to the swamp. He was from El Cerrito in Northern California. And he read Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. And he, so he thought that was super cool. And so he wrote all this swamp rock based on the books that he had read rather than actually being there. And then you talk about something similar by setting the scene, that Southern scene with the Elvis and stuff. And I thought it reminded me of that. Well, I guess it shows that you don't have to have been there to write about it. Yeah. And I know that's probably going to, you know, be disappointing to some people. Um, Sounds like, you know, musical tourism or something. I don't know. But, uh, (laughs) you know, I mean, the imagination is a beautiful thing. And to whatever extent and in whatever manner you can put it to work for you, I say it's all fair game. Well, and then you put people in the place, you know, like in the writing classes I took and that one of the themes that came up over and over again was show me, don't tell me. Don't yeah. tell me you went to the South. Show me you went to the South. Mississippi in the middle of a dry spell. Okay, now I get it. I'm there. <laughs> and so I thought that was a good distinction. And you did that really well. And then you talk about your opening lines and stuff. And that's exactly what it is. Put me there. Don't tell me. Show me. Yeah. And and then with, with, uh, with Fogarty, too, he talks about his songwriting process, right? And it's pretty cool because he says, like, you know, I know I'm simple, but he said I would find the right simple. So there's lots of simple, but I want the right simple. It's good guitar hook, good catchy lyrical hook. And he proved it over and over and over again. The guy put out three albums in 1969. There was hit songs on every album. Can you imagine putting out three albums in one year and having hit songs on every one of them? No, I'm getting tired hearing about it. Phenomenal. Like, yeah, and then he did it again. I think he did the same thing the next year. So, And his solo work stands up too. I don't know if you've heard, there was one that song on one of his solo albums called 110 in the Shade. I think he's got yeah. the Blind Boys of Alabama singing on it, and it's just it's well. He had Blue Moon Swamp was in from that song, you know. Yeah, and he had Blue Moon Swamp in '97. He won a Grammy for that. Actually, we do yeah. we do one song off there called Blue Boy. Oh, and I know that song. Yeah, good song. Yeah, it's a great song, and it's a you know very CCR esque kind of a song. Yeah. But no, he he was great. But I, he really gave some insights in that book, Fortunate Son. It's called Re- really good. Talked about the record business and everything. If you haven't had a chance to read it, it's it's well worth the the time. Hmm. So I wanted to ask you a couple other things. And uh, can I take one more break and then we'll come back and do our last segment? Is that okay? You bet. Okay, we're talking to Christopher Ward. We'll be right back. Liner Notes has a VIP community, and we'd love to have you as a member. 
listen to the weekly episodes before the rest of the world, enjoy bonus podcasts, and be the first to know about upcoming guests. Oh yeah, the episodes also have no ads, breaks, or interruptions of any kind. Check out the details and become a member at linernotes.ca. That's linernotes.ca. Now let's get back to our special guest. All right, we're back. We're having a great talk with Christopher Ward. Thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it and all the insights you're sharing and the things that you've done. And I wanted to ask you, what, what happened with Alana Miles' career? Because uh, one day you're, you're not known and the next day you're, it's a household word. Everybody knows who Alana Miles is. And that's got to be the ultimate springboard for having a, a long career and, and a longevity in your career. So what do you think happened with that? I don't agree with the premise of the question, I think, Dan, okay. to be honest with you. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, a hit song is, uh, you know, it's a once in a blue moon thing that happens. Yeah. But because it happens, it's not necessarily the precursor to a long career. In fact, in many ways, people would say the opposite is true. If you start your career reasonably humbly, maybe you're with an independent label and you're able to sell, you know, pick a number of, of records or streams or whatever. And then you slowly build and you tour and you develop a fan base and they, they stay with you and they grow with you. And um, then something happens that, you know, a big band sees you and they take you on tour and then suddenly, oh, more people know about you. And it's the long, slow growth that often I think is the formula for uh, a really, really durable career. Yeah. I think the people that suffer oftentimes are the ones that have a song that is so big that it's virtually impossible to, to top it the next time around. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just not a realistic expectation that a person would have a second or third black velvet up their sleeves. And, yeah. you know, her second album sold a few hundred thousand copies and was considered a failure. Hmm. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, it's yeah, like, that's neither, still pretty neither decent, is right? it musically a failure or commercially a failure in any sense yeah. of the word. But yeah. by contrast to the first one, I mean, in Canada, that first album sold 1.2 million copies. She was the first woman to have a diamond record. And, yeah. um, you know, it was just a, it was a, an absolute once in a lifetime phenomenon. Yeah, oh, good point. And I guess the, the old saying, the only thing harder than getting to the top is staying at the top, right? So that applies there. I think that applies for most people. Yes. And th- there's a case where we, we believe the cliche, right? <laughs> so. Yeah, there you go. And then, uh, so just as we wrap here, I wanted to talk about your new album, Same River Twice, which is most yes, cool. Please. I was familiar with that saying. And then, uh, um, you know, Lionel Richie was talking one time about his songs and he wrote Lady and then uh, um, uh, it was recorded by uh, Kenny, um, can't remember, so I'm thinking Kenny Loggins, but it's Kenny, the bearded guy. Kenny Rogers. Anyway, so you did, uh, Kenny Rogers, yeah, so he recorded Lady. So he said that he treated his songs like kids, you know, like his kids and people, other people would record them. And then, so you did redid Black Velvet because that's, I, I sort of reminded me of that. It's like one of your kids, you know, that's your tune, right? You wrote that with your, with another person and that's kind of your thing. And you wanted to re-record it for your new album, Same River Twice, which I think is, uh, it was cool. Yeah, it was a challenge because of the original and how well known and how well loved it is. Um, but it was, I think, a challenge worth uh, digging in and taking. Um, I, I really, it took me a while to yeah. figure it out, but after playing it down and trying to find something new in it, I think I realized that there were some aspects of the song that were not explored. There was a kind of a storyteller front porch quality to it that, uh, that I thought that I could pull yeah. off. Um, I could, you know, never sing the way that Helena does, obviously. Um, 
So well, yeah. why try, right? <laughs> well, I think that's right. I think you you said that, right? You said why I'm not trying to recreate what she did. That it is what it is. That's a permanent historical record at this point. It's not going to change, and and nor does it need to. So, so that was fine. But then it was curious to me, like, how do you break through these days? Like putting out an album that this I find it's saturation and apathy are the two enemies that we fight right there's just so much out there now so it's saturated you have to break through that and then apathy people listen to it eh, that's pretty good you know you do your best and how do you fight those two things um well you know i mean i hadn't made a record in 30 years so it wasn't like i have any kind of pattern yeah. to rely on and in many ways it was kind of a whimsical yeah. <laughs> choice it was just me writing a bunch of songs and then thinking well what am i gonna do with these songs they feel kind of different than other stuff that i've written for artists and I thought, well, you know what? And actually, I, let's blame Mark Jordan because he did at one point say to me, Chris, you got to make a record, man. So I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, nice. And, yeah. Um, and and I knew what he was saying. He said, do it for your daughter, which was a sweet thing for him to say. Yeah. And, um, and I thought, okay, you know what? Why not? So I just rounded up the best talent I could find, best musicians. Yeah. Nobody was working. Nobody was touring. So everybody was available. A couple of collaborators, Aaron Chattervedi and Luke McMaster, songwriters and producers. And yeah. the three of us just sat down and mapped it out. We went in the studio with these great players. Um, we recorded it live off the floor. We did 13 tracks in four days. And, nice. you know, we did a bunch of overdubbing and took our time with that. Yeah, but, of course. You yeah. know, the spirit of it was live and loose and, and just yeah. get it while you can. And the players learned the songs in the studio the day we recorded them. It was a blast doing it. And so, yeah. you know, I didn't I didn't worry. I didn't try to compare it to anything. I wasn't even thinking, honestly, about the commercial aspects of it. I just wanted to do something that was creatively the best quality work that I could possibly do. And I wanted to put some songs out that reflected a man of a certain age. And, at a, you know, I mean, there's not a lot of music made for people of our generation anymore. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can go back to your old Crosby, Stills, Nash records if you want, but, you know, to hear yeah. new music that reflects, you know, people of our age. I mean, yeah, there's, there's, you know, there's the Bob Dylans and Neil Young's and, and, you know, people like that are still going strong. Um, but that, that was, that was kind of my goal in doing so. So I didn't really worry about, you know, how I was going to promote it. I mean, you know, I stumbled along with social media like anybody, trying to find yeah. a way to do it and just try to be authentic and talk to people and tell them what I'm doing and why and see if they like it. Yeah, no, fair enough. That, that's a good point. You just do your best, put it out there, because it's the state of radio these days, and I guess you can try YouTube, but again, it's just such a, a morass of everything from soup to nuts. And I think even some of the established artists like the Neil Youngs or the ZZ Tops, they're fighting, you know, sort of saturation and, and apathy or indifference as well, right? I mean, it's everyone's challenge. I guess. I don't know what their individual battles are because they have access to an audience, even if it's not a huge one. Um, you know, they, they do have a way of reaching yeah. people. You know, the Heritage Act's like that. Yeah. Uh, but the days of selling a million albums are, are, are waning. Yeah, but that wasn't my goal. I didn't have any yeah. delusions about taking on Sean Mendes' album sales. You know, Yeah, it fair just, enough, yeah. It, yeah. it really... It didn't even cross my mind for a second. It was it was more about doing something good, and I got to say, the response that I've gotten back has been incredibly affirming. People have said, yeah. you know, this is they they like the record and they like what it says and they like what the songs are about. And there's a humility about the work 
and an ease with which it was done that I think is rare enough that it was it was really worth committing to. Well, and it's you, and and that, that years ago that I was told that people want you, and if if it's you, that that's you, right? That's this is me. I sing songs. I write songs. This is me, and I think that the authentic authenticity there speaks well, you know, and you'd hope that it would in that case. Yeah, well, that's why I did it. I hope you like it. Yeah, I I, I listened to the Black Velvet and Sway and beautiful, like nice, smooth, relaxed. Doesn't ask a lot of you. Just listen to it and, you know, sitting on your porch and kind of chilling. So, well, no, I really appreciate you sharing that. And we'll uh, we'll try to give you some love on the on the uh, broadcast here as well. And, and with ChristopherWard.ca and Christopher Ward Music, we'll uh, try to direct some people towards that as well. Uh, there's one question I have to ask you now that I got you on here. Uh, I used to love watching. <laughs> I used to love watching pop-up video. I don't know why it was just a quirky thing, but I just thought it was the coolest thing. And the best one ever was one of my favorite songs ever was "No Rain" by Blind Melon. I just that song touched me so deeply. And then I watched the pop-up video of that song, and it's one of the most moving experiences I think I've ever had. And I just wanted to ask you about pop-up video and if you've ever seen that one in particular. I've never seen that one. I've hardly seen any pop-up videos because when I was in much, we didn't play them. We oh, didn't, didn't have that. Oh, so no, that came after me. So, oh, so they I edited think it was more them. like a VH1 thing, you know? Okay, yeah. No, I was wondering about that because I couldn't find it. I was trying to find it, and it was so good because it gives you information, so I, right? I, I unfortunately have no answer whatsoever for that question, okay. Dan. Oh, <laughs> you wilted my flower. No, that's okay. I thought, well, if I'm I know you saved it till the end and I feel bad for <laughs> this the lunch bag letdown of the day here. Yeah. No, no, that's all good. I just thought I'd ask you about it because it was, it just touched me so much. I, somebody asked me one time, what are your five favorite songs? I mean, if, if someone asked you that, what would you say? It's, it's a tough question, right? And, and I think I put no rain in there. Hmm. Just because it was so so touching and so moving, two two chord song, three chord song. But uh, okay, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today. You're just such an insightful guy and an inspiration, and Thank all the you. stuff you've done and that. So um, I really really enjoyed talking to you, and I hope that you uh, felt the same way. I tried to ask you some different stuff and go down some different roads, but uh, really good, really enjoyed it. It was my pleasure, Dan, and pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much. Many thanks to Christopher Ward for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from his life in the music business. More information is available at ChristopherWard.ca. Quite a nice website and lots of information there. And uh, Facebook, also Christopher Ward Music. So check that out. And we hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. You can also become a member if you'd like notifications and other insider information perks. We'd love to have you on board. We also invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio at DustyDiscsRadio.com Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you are hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Harris.